Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, ho, ho, ho. You are listening to the special Christmas edition of the BIP show for 2021. This is the fifth year we've done this, half a decade, as Laura Fitzsimmons just pointed out to me. I'm Paul Colgan, uh, a director at research and campaign strategy firm CT Group. And uh, that's it. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, we're all ready to finish up the year, I think. <laughs> everybody wants early marks. Just kidding, of course. We've got a great show in store. Uh, let's go around the table and introduce our guests. Uh, very familiar uh, to those of you who've been uh, uh, following the show over the years. Uh, Joanne Masters, Chief Economist at EY Oceania, one of the true great communicators on economics in Australia. Hello, Joe. Fantastic to be with you. I'm thrilled to be Fifth year, I think, as you said, so that's super exciting. Yeah, fifth year, uh, amazing. And also uh, in for the fifth time, David Scott, Osbiz anchor and markets guru uh, extraordinaire. How are you, Dave? It's great to be back. And uh, I'm fantastic, thank you. And uh, yeah, it's great for my once a year cameo, so I'm looking forward to it. No, oh, thanks, thanks. It's great to hear that voice back on the show. Uh, and from the front line of markets, very much at the pointy end, we've got Laura Fitzsimmons, uh, Executive Director of Macro Sales at uh, JP Morgan. Hi, Laura, how are you? Hi, Paul, I'm very well, thank you. Well, thanks for coming back. It's really uh, awesome to see you. Uh, here again. And also joining us on the line from Melbourne is Adelaide. That's uh, Adelaide joining us from Melbourne. Uh, Adelaide Timbrell, uh, Senior Economist at ANZ Bank. Uh, Adelaide, uh, it's been great meeting you this year. Um, uh, we really uh, loved all your contributions to the show um, and it's great having you on. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, there's the inimitable James Whelan, Investment Director at VFS Group. How are you, James? How are you now, Paul? Really stoked to be here. Five years we've been doing this, but from, from that simple idea that we had all that time ago, who thought that it would have been something still so drink, amazing? Still drinking champagne as well. Still, yeah, drinking, still drinking the entire time. Yeah, and pipe. one of us is wearing a funny hat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no prizes for guessing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a penguin Christmas hat this time, James. Yeah, it's good. I've, I've, I've already announced it to the world. It's pretty good. I'm very happy with this hat. It's good, good, good for Festivus. Anyway, <laughs> on with the show. What's the next thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so starting us off, um, we've got something that we did last year, uh, and it was so lovely. Um, and, you know, it was really funny just thinking back to this time last year when we did this show, and it was like, well, wasn't 2020 a real surprise for all of us? Oh, and surely 2021 is going to be better. Um, but nah. Um, so... Um, <laughs> 2021. Yeah. yeah and then so 2022, it's just a sequel saying, over and over again. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like, it's this whole thing of, you know, you have the same conversation, the same group of people. Hopefully, if we do this next year, uh, we will be going, well, thank goodness 2022 was actually better. But Chris Pidcock is a cellist with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. Chris is a real virtuoso, and he's... Um, uh, among the many things that he does, he's a champion in uh, Sydney and Australia more broadly for the music of J.S. Bach. Uh, he released an album this time last year, actually, uh, called Immersed in Bach. Uh, you can find it on Spotify. Chris also runs Opus Now, which is a regular con concert series featuring young emerging uh, classical musicians um, from a wide variety of backgrounds uh, playing in unusual venues around the city. So you, you should look that up. It's on Facebook, Opus Now. But Chris has agreed to um, provide some Christmas spirit for us uh, with his beautiful playing. I will hand over to Chris uh, to kick us off. <laughs> Thank you. 
Wonderful. Thank you. What <laughs> a great piece. Um, Chris, uh, uh, briefly, uh, I guess, but um, another like very difficult year for the, um, for the creative industry in, uh, in Australia. Yeah, Paul, absolutely, absolutely. It's um, uh, really the human condition has become, I think we've become so aware how important music plays in our lives. Um, particularly, I think a lot of people at home have picked up their guitar and, and, pian and just dusted off the piano and, and, you know, even my piano playing's gotten a bit better. And um, I think that's going to hopefully impact the uh, industry, uh, you know, next year where people have a heightened awareness of, of this kind of communication that's integral to our human, human condition. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly going to be, and I think, you know, one thing that's been, you know, there's all this stuff happening at the moment, like the Beatles um, stuff coming out and, uh, you know, the, the, the documentary, but also, you know, new music and um, just been wonderful to see that. And I think it's great, you know, um, seeing those connections with music and the city. And Sydney's got a lot of questions uh, ahead of it over the next uh, year in terms of, like, how do we use the space in the city and... Um, you know, how do we attract people back into the city on, a, on an ongoing basis? And uh, music definitely going to be a big part of that. And um, big plans for the Sydney Symphony Orchestra next year. Oh, yeah. Um, we're all looking forward to the um, Opera House, uh, the, the refurbishment. It's gonna, that's going to be incredible. Yeah, getting back home, back where you belong. Oh, yeah. can't wait. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, let's talk about the year that was. Um, so we always have kind of the same uh, uh, structure for this. Um, uh, and uh, it's nice and easy just to s sit down and have a bit of time to reflect on. Um, the and I think one of the things is, you know, we always, uh, in the news cycle, we're always doing short, sharp takes, you know, in our work on things that have happened. Uh, but uh, we, we have a bit of a chance, uh, obviously, to just reflect a, a bit more deeply uh, here. Um, but Laura, I might start with you. Um, just out in global macro world, it was an enormous year, like with rates, equities, um, all of the debate about inflation, um, and now uh, this kind of pretty interesting uh, change that's happening at, with the Federal Reserve. Um, what would be the big things that you took out of uh, what happened this year? I would say the main lesson that's been learnt is to not listen to central banks because clearly they can change their mind, they can get things wrong uh, and I think we'd all become too accustomed to this forward guidance and, you know, don't fight the Fed in markets, um, that, that whole theory um, which was proven wrong this year and uh, I think, you know, we're starting to see now a lot of the, um, you know, the previous assumptions being unwound and, uh, you know, market positioning is really you know, in many ways called th certain moves right, um, but clearly it's, it's taken a lot of victims along the way as well. So I think for, for me in markets and for a lot of my clients and uh, yeah, most traders out there, I think that's probably the main lesson that's learned. So who do you think was fighting the Fed then? Um, you know, what, what was the point at which people decided actually we're ready to take this on, particularly with short rates or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we had the show earlier in the year when we met and talked about inflation and clearly I think back in March, you know, the market started to fear that it wasn't transitory uh, and, it, you know, it wasn't so much that we were worried about the taper tantrum this time around, but people were like, it's actually inflation and the, the central banks are not paying enough attention to that. And that's clearly been a theme throughout the year and it's proven right, um, you know, that, that that was the right fear to have. Uh, but I think at the time, you know, we were all promised that rates would stay low and, you know, we wouldn't be moving rates until this time or calendar-based guidance and uh, it certainly, um, you know, was not the right thing to be listening to. Was there a point that where you kind of changed your view on inflation? I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not an inflation expert and, and I think what you found, you know, whether it's armchair epidemiology or, you know, inflation experts, they all come out of the woodwork in years like this. Um, but that's certainly not my game. Um, probably more, Joe, that's over to you. Uh, but it's I do think... It's secret, secret of this <laughs> podcast, I think. <laughs> <laughs> But I think, you know, we all have our anecdotes and you can see the signs around you. Um, and I think what's the challenge really is that you've had central banks trying to apply also pre-pandemic frameworks to a situation that's very different now. And, you know, their struggle with that has been very much borne out, in, you know, in, in front of all of us. And, uh, you know, they're trying to figure it out. Um, so I guess that's where we've all learned that lesson, I would say. Uh, Dave, um, looking at markets, um, you know, across assets and all the different things that you cover on a on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and again, you know, you're covering it at 100 miles an hour, um, uh, you know, in your daily work. But what, what did you think, um, if you look back on, on this year, uh, what were the standouts for you? 
If 2020 was a year of unprecedented events, this was a year of frustration, I think, for a lot of people, uh, including a lot of people in markets. So there was what you thought was likely to go and curve didn't go and take place, and that constant frustration, you could see that tension the whole year. Uh, the other big thing, we've talked about central banks. I think this year has been one of those years where it's been too much central bank overkill, uh, overarching from what their actual mandates are and going into areas of the market and distorting things to the level that uh, people don't know what risk is anymore. And I wonder what's it going to be next year when we start to unwind that. And I think it's going to be pretty volatile. Mm. What, what do you think it might take? Uh, you know, w- were you surprised at the, um, you know, even with the change in the Fed's tone in recent weeks, that there hasn't been like whatever pullback there was in uh, equities was um, tiny and recovered, you know, within, you know, 48, 72 hours. Yeah, but you've been pre-programmed, preconditioned to go and buy the dip, and uh, it takes time to go and change those uh, those ways. And uh, no one's really been tested in these markets. It's been very easy as an investor to go and buy the index over the past uh, past eighteen, twenty months or so, and just ride the wave. The liquidity wave has lifted all boats, but uh, that's going to change soon, uh, and then that's going to create opportunities. The uh, the strong will survive, and the uh, the other uh, weak, you know, will go by the wayside. So be very careful out there. Um, Adelaide, you uh, cover like the Australian dom- domestic economy. You cover all the major data. Um, uh, you know, we talked specifically about the property market um, earlier this year. Um, so, for you, um, what, um, what what has really stood out for you in terms of the domestic economy? Um, uh, uh, ha- how things have unfolded this year? That's a really good question, and there's so many crazy things that happened this year, so it's hard to. Uh, make that a concise answer. But I think one of the big ones was, you know, when we did get the um, Q3 GDP data and it only went down 1.9%. I think just the fact that we've seen the economy transform and so many businesses and households transform to really make themselves more resilient to some of those COVID side effects like lockdowns and lack of travel. So, you know, I think um, I can't see everyone. I think it might have been Laura who was saying that, you know, central banks have been using these pre-COVID frameworks. And I think a lot of forecasters who use pre-COVID frameworks are having trouble as well because the relationships between all the data has really structurally changed. You know, the high household savings rate is something that some people are pointing to as being a, a risk for consumption going forward. But I actually see it as a huge boost for consumption in 2022. It's not the GFC where people save money because they were scared of a rainy day. In fact, unemployment expectations are at 24-year low, which is just incredible considering, you know, how much economic loss we've seen in the last two years, you know, 7% in a single quarter last year, 1.9% in a single quarter this year. Just the speed of recovery has been absolutely amazing. Of course, you know, monetary and fiscal supports go into that quite a lot, but if we had gone into COVID before the internet was, you know, as established as it is before, you know, Zoom calls and webcams and, and all of that stuff, I think it would have been an extremely different story. So we're kind of lucky in terms of the way that the pandemic timing and technological timing has uh, intersected this year. And, and um, I suppose the thing is at, at what cost, right? So obviously the, on the fiscal side, there's this, um, you know, very significant deficit, um, you know, extending into the decade uh, ahead. We've got... Um, mid-year budget update uh, coming next week, I believe, and then um, the budget uh, in March. Um, how do you see like the need for reform? Do you think things have changed permanently on the fiscal side uh, in terms of what governments think they might be capable of doing, or do you see um, a slow return to uh, the need to to be running a balanced budget? So I think that, you know, any big economic shock is such a great opportunity to look at reforms and to try and rethink things, whether that actually happens is another story a lot of the time. But um, certainly it would be great to see things like, you know, looking at the minimum wage going up, looking at, you know, the dole going up and things like that, because um, I think, you know, we have really been stretching ourselves on a lot of those things. The budget balance in itself, you know, I'm personally not too concerned about that. I think that having so much wage pressure and, and you know, between that and um, bracket creep and how much business investment is going in, we're likely to see that a lot of that gap gets filled by the strengthening of the economy. But I think, you know, as Dave said, the um, monetary policy side is going to be a lot trickier. We've really distorted that kind of understanding of risk and 
I'm I'm really concerned about you know a lot of households who have felt like they've got to expose themselves a lot more to some of those riskier financial assets because not you're falling behind if you have money in the bank. That's something that's really structurally changed in our economy, and that's putting a lot more financial volatility risk uh, on households, and um, particularly households from people who are locked out of the property market. And I think that's going to have some really interesting financial stability. Uh, consequences later on and financial stability is one of the reserve bank's mandate but having these ultra low interest rates have actually caused a lot of financial stability risks particularly in the housing market and the way people have to try and find that return on their their money as well so um joe um, um, Joanne Masters, one, one thing we've talked about over the years has been like the intent of central banking policy has been to get people to take more risks. Um, so I might start with you, like what, what do you think are your big takeouts, but maybe you can also talk about this thing of like, have we finally reached that point and, um, uh, and might it um, be a bit of a concern going forward? So the big takeouts are always hard when you go last. <laughs> um, but I, I, I might flip and talk about more broadly. I, I, I'm actually really proud and optimistic uh, of Australia's performance through not just the last year, but through the last two years. Uh, we haven't done everything perfectly, but we have had a world-leading health and economic response. Um, we've saved lives and we've saved livelihoods and at least from what we can tell at the moment, we've minimised economic scarring. There is economic scarring there, but it's a lot less than it, it could have been. And there's a whole heap of factors for that. Um, part of that is actually relatively good and swift and large policy response. Some of that is the fact that we're geographically an island, so we can close our borders. Um, fun fact, we, we did some research on the, the relativity of economic and health outcomes and the balance sheets that underpin each economy. And the economies that had outperformed typically uh, were all either geographically islands or peninsulas, but also beer drinking countries. Um, I don't know if that's related, but... No one um, did so well. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Um, so, you know, we've shown to be resilient and we've shown that our economy is more flexible than we thought it was. And I think that's a, a, a good thing and that that will stand us in good stead going forward. In terms of risk appetite, I think Adelaide makes a really good point about particularly younger Australians, those Australians that are locked out of the housing market, being forced up the risk curve and also pensioners being forced up the risk curve. Um, so it's not all households, it's particular elements of, of the consumer market. But it's really interesting if we think about it from a business perspective, because one of the issues that we saw before the pandemic was that non-mining business investment was really weak and mm. weakening. And part of the story there was that we have relatively high hurdle rates of investment here in Australia. And we actually still have quite high hurdle rates. Um, Cedar's about to do a survey on that, which I think will be really, really interesting. Um, but that tells us that even though we've reduced the cost of capital, there's something in that risk premium that is just a bit sticky and just doesn't come down. Um, and I think that's, you know, we've seen that sort of quantitative easing push into asset markets, push into households, but haven't really seen an increase in risk appetite from the business sector. Mm. And that's part of what we need to build a more dynamic Australia. And to come back to your comment about debt and deficit repair, I mean, my own view is it's too early to start talking about cyclical deficit repair, but the least costly way of addressing the debt burden that we have is to boost productivity. Mm. And that is reform, but it's also business risk-taking and business dynamism. I'm glad you raised uh, CapEx. Um, James... You've got a real thing about CapEx, James, don't you? James was on the receiving end from a, from a massive spray <laughs> <laughs> from me about CapEx uh, a few months ago. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. all based on... You know that chart that the, the RBA has where they show the... Um, uh, CapEx as a, a percentage of GDP, and you just see it decline, 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 and it like ticked up ever so slightly, but it's still down at like 10%, and you kind of, for it to be healthy and to get those, unlock those productivity, um, the potential productivity improvements that they're in there, you probably need to see it back up towards the 13, 14 kind of thing. Mining boom territory was 16 to 18, um, and that's when the RBA had to lift rates to cool everything down. But... Uh, this year, they also the RBA also published a chart which showed exactly what you were talking about: hurdle rates in corporates um, going back over a certain period of time, um, and the, you see the uh, cash rate um, 
dropping away underneath it, but the hurdle rate hovering uh, and staying stu- super sticky uh, up there. So, I mean, there's something yeah. in, there's the amount of investment. There's also the type of investment and, and who's investing, right? Sure. Um, so if you want to push productivity and dynamism, you, you want to see investment by small startups. You want to see those startups becoming bigger. You want to see investment by big companies in things that fundamentally change the way that we work. And, and we saw a bit of that in COVID. There are sectors of the economy that had to pivot to working from home that had never done that before and that required a capex spend. So there is a productivity dividend from that. But it's not um, it's not that the sort of old-fashioned investment that the mining boom gave us, right? It's new ways of working, fundamentally rethinking the business model that you have and driving the investment underneath that you need for that. And we're just typically not very good at doing that. And what do you think those investments might look like? So what areas or sectors would you be looking for growth in CapEx? I mean, the the obvious one is around decarbonisation. And in that sense, what we've seen through the pandemic is encouraging and interesting. So Laura may have a better perspective on this, but we've seen uh, a surge in ESG-related investment um, that has actually accelerated during covid And in a weird way, I feel like in the midst of a crisis and a pandemic, as an investor, suddenly that decarbonisation investment was one of the less risky investments you could make. You know, it was a trend that was coming regardless of the pandemic. So so I find that really interesting, right? So the hurdle rate there, you know, possibly came down a bit because the risk associated with investing in decarb felt less than the risk associated in things that you would typically think are fairly easy to get over and over the run. And that's encouraging because it shows us that businesses can do it. They, they can adjust the hurdle always, rates. We've always known that they can do it. I think that's a, also if you're a listed company and you do those amazing ESG things, and it does help you get into the ESG ETFs, which have been a big theme this year too. Yeah. And that's that's an important one as well. So it's sort of two birds with one stone. You're helping your, helping your share price and also doing all the amazing things. Uh, Laura, just on that, um, green bonds, mm-hmm. um, a huge theme this year uh, in credit markets. Um, do you want to just summarise, like, how, how are they working? Because governments are issuing them now. Um, like, there uh, appears to be what gets called greenium, right? So, like, a, a little discount if you're backing a green bond. Um, uh, what's been the experience there? Yeah, so I guess what's interesting to watch the ESG um, sort of the movement that's happening, particularly as it relates to equities, is because, you know, in bonds, we've actually been issuing green for a while. Uh, You know, governments are now getting more involved in it, but certainly from like um, supranationals and uh, some of the other issuers. you know, we have seen these markets um, kind of, you know, quite active for some time, particularly Europe really led the trend. Uh, so, you know, more and more investors locally are, are certainly looking at this now. Um, but, and, and they have to be, right, particularly super funds and, and uh, you know, asset managers, I mean, it's critical um, to their members and, and to their investors. So I think essentially it's, it's certainly not going to change. As you say, Joe, it was, it was the, you know, the easy trade. You could just, you know, shut your eyes and it'll, it'll just perform. I think, you know, some... We, we do get concerned around sort of the green washing, um, mm. which, you know, just because necessarily a government uh, or, you know, some sort of issuer is doing a green bond, it could be more infrastructure, but you can sort of say, but it's it's more environmentally friendly, et cetera, therefore it's a green bond. So the broad definitions are a concern in some ways. And I think investors, you know, they, they're right to do their homework um, because I think they'll come at the stage where it will... And I think in equities, you know, it is very... Um, I think very strict and obviously granular, which is the equities world. It's not. Um, it's, it's <laughs> I've, I've done a lot of work on this this year, mm. and it's not as as strict as you might think it okay. should be. There's <laughs> a lot, lot of lot of stuff open up to interpretation in the equity space. Mm. Really, so, is amazing. And I think with governments, you know, essentially they can sort of get away with it a lot easier as well. So oh, I yeah. think that's. Uh, that's, you know, something to be watched in the future, but uh, that's, that's kind of the concern we have around it. But certainly we're massive proponents of it and we have to be involved and we're, we're excited to be involved. Uh, but it just feels like, you know, people just shouldn't be too blind to, to what they're getting into. James. Now, uh, what we haven't mentioned, let's take a little side note of where we are actually sitting at this particular time. We're in, the, we're in the penthouse of the Grace Hotel. Um, I proposed to my wife in this hotel, actually. And the good people who, uh, who now have this space are called Grapple. Um, so they're our space sponsor, I suppose we'll say. Very kind of them. Um, Michael, who's the, the COO of, of Grapple, 
just offered the place up and it's fantastic. We've got a space, the acoustics are fine. Chris, yeah, he's, he's given us the thumbs up there. So it's good enough, good enough for one of the best. It's good enough for me. Uh, so our space sponsor is Grapple. Grapple has developed cutting-edge technology to fund Australian SMEs, delivering flexible solutions and a seamless user experience. Grapple provides working capital financing for Australian businesses at any stage of growth. Speaking of capex so this is a good segue there indeed indeed um and also they've got great offices so if you're dealing with an office here see this point yeah yeah we'll post Um, the photos yeah um so james your big take outs well uh, the esg esg thing for this year was was obviously a big takeaway from this year um i think that sort of echoing something that david just said there which which is and also laura too which is that we are seeing the effects now of what happens when you try and solve a health crisis with a gfc solution where we're going to throw a whole heap of money at it and lower rates and we'll hope that that just works in solving a health crisis. And, and I think that now we're sort of saying, starting to see what happens when you're trying to extricate, extricate yourself from that uh, as well. I still think that we need to see something in the, in the realm of a normalisation of rates and by normalisation of rates, I do mean something in the in the four to four and a half percent sort what? of area. I know, and everyone says, "What? Oh, it can't that's be done. It can't be done." Let me go light the city that's, up now. See, and everyone <laughs> thinks everyone thinks it is going to flambe flambe America. And so it's it's well, okay. We, it's it, it, we do, need we need to have people because everyone where do you here. Think neutral is like that's your starting point, right? Where do you think the neutral cash rate is? Where do where do I think? No, that just the, my normalisation of where where's my normal? I, I used to be five percent. But that's your old normal. Yeah, I know. Right? Your new normal. I mean four. Real neutral interest rates been falling since the 1300s. It's, it's, Literally, it's, hundreds it's, it, of years it, of structural decline. It needs to be. It needs to be somewhere in there because something that everyone just mentioned on was that people have to take higher risks on their investments. So, and we mentioned this when we did the the open air one on the old podcast. We at the Ivy that night. I was sitting next to. Yeah, anyway, and, and we were t- I was sitting next to Con, that's right, and Con, and we were talking about how far to the right, thinking that the left is safe and right is, is speculative, or right is risky, that everyone's portfolio had to shift more to the right to be able to reach those returns, which is an unsafe behaviour to go f- through for the long term. You're going to have old people, superannuation funds get blown up, one little trigger, volatility then suddenly starts to, starts to really affect you. You need that left side to be that safe, risk-free return, which just isn't there. So that, wh- how do you get that back then? Job. But it's it's okay if it's okay, isn't it? If if inflation is two and you can get two on a bond, okay. Well, I mean, I guess I think about it differently, right? I don't think about setting the cash rate to um, reduce risk in the economy or help um, retirees who have absolutely done it tough. But for every person living on their retirement earnings, we have two people that have a mortgage. So from a broad macro perspective, um, I guess I think about the starting point is where where do you think your real neutral interest rate is? And our best guess is it's around zero at the moment, which means that if you believe the RBA's inflation mandate, that gives you inflation of two and a half, that gives you a nominal rate of two and a half, and that's where you're not influencing that economic cycle. So if you're telling me you think you've got a cash rate at four, that's highly contractionary. And Mm. I would argue that won't help uh, Australians because it will collapse, well, not collapse the economy, but you will have much lower economic growth. And it's really economic growth per capita that drives living standards, not the cash rate per se. But that may just be a different perspective and way of thinking about it. I think, think, yeah, it would be... And you'd get an. Can't, you'd can't get, argue with the jumps. Get, <laughs> What's the point? And also, you, like, you get like under your scenario, you, you get an inverted yield curve, right? I think mm. I'm, lo- I'm looking at Laura and David going. You'd have an inverted yield curve. David's freaking help. out in the corner over yeah, there. Yeah, the whole, <laughs> the whole, the whole the Sydney CBD would be you know, on fire. <laughs> it was. The place, so, be, so, the place would be burning down with a cash rate that kind of high. So it affect that I've got to spend the rest of my career investing for people further up the risk curve and think it's all going to be okay? Could we have something that happened like last week where all of a sudden, oh, there's a new virus strain out of South Africa and everyone just loses their minds? That's how this is going but to the be. What put now. is there? Well, what put? The one that... Who saved it? The one that came Fed, in. Fed didn't, Fed didn't come in. No, Fed the didn't Fed save didn't. this one. No, that's the, the market's usual Fed put. put. The market's got to put. Just the retail dip buyers over in the States on their Robin Hood accounts. But they're not... The retail couldn't save that. There was record retail, re- record retail buying on that day when everything crashed. It was over $2 billion in the States. That day, it was incredible. It was it was phenomenal, mm. and that uh, that was a re- that was a real thing. So retail was buying off Insta. I think you make a really good point, though. Oh, like wow. if you think about the welfare of Australians, 
and supporting the most vulnerable people, we're in an environment where actually financial advice is very important in a low low interest rate environment where you're pushing people up the yield curve, but we're also making financial advice less accessible, right? Yes, we are. And that's, that's, that's I could go on about that for ages. We've taken, we've taken real good personal advice away from regular smaller retail accounts and therefore they're more likely to try and go for something that's, that's less safe, probably less regulated, and you know what I'm talking about here, to try and reach those, those same returns that they can, as opposed to that situation where they go, I've got 40% of my portfolio in something that is as close to being risk-free as possible and it's going to provide me with a fairly guaranteed return. That's now not there anymore. Where, where are you going to go? Where do you get it back? How do people have that? People need to be able to sleep at night and not continually worry that if the Fed doesn't come to my rescue or if the tapering is too quick or if inflation is too quick and everything, like what does, what's happened over the last few weeks, mm. then, mm. well, that's my super fund is just completely now blown up. Yeah, And that well, comes back to Adelaide's point, right? So Adelaide, you made that point about the segments of the household market that um, are being pushed up the risk curve and you worry about that. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Especially when the stakes are so high because it's not like you can kind of scrounge around at the back of your couch for a house deposit anymore. Like you need to be saving for 10 plus years. And so there's going to be a lot of desperate people that are going, well, if I have my cash in the bank, everyone else is going to beat me to the housing market and I need to do something else. And I think we're seeing a lot of that at the moment. And um, I feel very like, I don't really know how to say that, say this without sounding really cliche, but, you know, social media and all of the um, misinformation that goes around there that can make people feel um, a lot more uh, safe about going into a pretty risky financial market, I think creates this big Dunning-Kruger effect that is going to make it really hard for a lot of people. And some will win, but some will really lose. And uh, that can have those some very long-reaching consequences in that pretty low-wage growth, low-inflation environment, which, and I really agree with you, Joe, I don't think the neutral rate is, you know, close, it's probably closer to zero than it is to one, right? So we're never going to get back to a point where you can just kind of ride the wave of, you know, housing price growth and um, all the stuff that we've seen from, you know, generations which are kind of starting to retire now. We're not going to see that for future generations. I've got a good joke for you. Ready? Um, I'm really good at explaining the Donning-Kruger effect. Boomtish. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there it is, everyone. Yeah. Well, no, because just today I saw a story about this couple who um, poured their savings into crypto and... Um, you know, trying to save for a house deposit and it's all gone. Well, I'm going to call it, um, in case you still have me back in 10 years or 15 years' time, (laughs) housing affordability is an absolute emergency issue in Australia. Mm -hmm. It is a social issue, it's an economic issue, it's a political issue and issues around intergenerational equity are really serious and the tailwind of the family you've born to is now incredibly important uh, Mm, to your mm. living standards and I don't think that's the Australia that most people envisaged or most people are comfortable with. I don't know how you fix it but I'm I'm going to call it the number one issue. No one knows how you fix it but what we are facing and we're coming into now, more people are talking about it um, over the last few days, is this transfer of wealth coming from the boomers down to this next generation or whoever's going to be picking up the tab for that one. That will put a lot of money into and and I'm sure Adelaide's about to pick up on this but it's... um, that's, that's going to put a lot of money into the pockets of people who probably need it a lot right now. And maybe now is not the time to be going inheritance tax. Now is going to be the time for you You now have an opportunity to buy a house. But you need boomers to give it to their grandchildren. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the average age of receiving uh, your inheritance is 50. So a Productivity um, Commission report out this week. So you don't need it at 50. I don't need it at 50. You need, you it, need it at 30, right? 30. Yeah. Trust me, I need it at 40. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's right now. But uh, my um, parents will be alive for a very long time. Yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting point, the whole intergenerational wealth transfer. And, you know, my parents are, are boomers. And they're going to live for ages. Yep. And, um, Which is a I'm good thing. Which is great. Yeah. Which is beautiful, of course. I love my parents. I'm very glad that they're, you know, healthy and wealthy and all the rest. But from an intergenerational wealth transfer perspective, my uterus is not going to work okay. by the time I'm 55 getting my inheritance. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And a lot of, um, and I say that as a joke, but I also say that yeah. very seriously. It is you a, know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't want to, um, you know, I, I think we... We use this intergenerational wealth thing and this inheritance thing as an excuse 
Um, and the thing is, you know, even if you're the one of the lucky people that has parents who will be able to give you that wealth transfer, uh, it's this problem is compounded the fact that not everybody has parents like that. A lot of people in that generation are going to be living longer and also spending up. You know, retiree travel is just an incredible part of the um, growth in global tourism. You know, that part doesn't go back to your inheritance. So I think um, relying on inheritance itself, I think, is an extremely problematic way to give people what I think is an essential service of housing, you know, shelter. It's not, it's not like we're asking for anything crazy here. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that um, Joe's right. I, I see it as one of the biggest um, wealth inequality uh, problems, and I think wealth inequality since COVID has already probably skyrocketed. I can't wait to see the data on this because I think it's going to be just a growing, growing problem, and as housing gets more expensive, it also gets harder to correct it because there's some very indebted people that are more and more desperately going, oh, I don't want to get into negative equity. Um, and the amount of mortgage that we have is incredible, even with, you know, the massive offset accounts that some people do have from savings. But if we break that down by age or by recency of first home, I think it'll be a much bleaker story than what's hidden in the averages. Yeah. And, and Joe, I think you put it very well. Like if it's a question of fairness, like when it becomes a question of fairness, then it becomes like very live political uh, issue now, like it has been, you know, in lots of ways, um, the inaccessibility of property has been, a, you know, in has, but the, as the, you get continue to see this asset price inflation with property, it exacerbates it, um, and people being fully shot out of the market in the big cities is obviously a big question because it means like you can't build a life in the maybe the the place that you choose to live or where your family's from or. Um, and interestingly, you know, we we tend to talk about home ownership, but we're actually seeing shelter property in any form in our capital cities as becoming inaccessible. Yeah. So we know that homelessness is rising sure. uh, in our capital cities and that's a pretty confronting trend I think to see. It is a, and again, no one has a real answer that can be suggested to, to be able to solve it. And oh. I, 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 I've asked the question before, is there any country that has a history, is there any time in the, in the history of the world when a government by policy has been able to fix a problem that's like this? Can someone show me an example when it's happened? I know. I don't know from my perspective. Australia showed last year, the government showed last year, that when there's a will, there's a way to go and get things done and to go overcome problems. So to say that they can't go and address homelessness is is a bit bit weak in my no, opinion. No, no. Yeah, it's they, they have they had the resources. We have the the wealth in this country to go and do so. Uh, it doesn't take a lot to go and decide to go. Well, let's go and put some programs in place. Let's put some shelters in place. But they've got to do it. Yeah, they do have to do it. Uh, on a different note, um, uterus was our BIP show word of the day. Uh, Adelaide will be sending you a, a bottle of champagne. Are we playing, are we playing a drinking game? <laughs> yeah, drink. Oh, you didn't tell me that was it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not over till it's over. <laughs> Adelaide dropping the U-bomb. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. Um, very next? good. Um, what's next? Okay, uh, what I do want to talk about is what we're going to um, um, lo- be looking at next year. And Joe, I'll start with you. You can go first this time. Awesome. Um, so, the co- you know, I talk to businesses right across the country, every sector of the economy. Um, as you know, I have the coolest job around. I get to talk to really smart people about really interesting things. So, um, so that's awesome. Um, the conversations I'm having at the moment, it's really interesting. They're pretty consistent. Um, they are less about the pandemic, even with Omicron. Um, you know, there's an interest in that, but it's not front and centre. So the issues that are front and centre in every conversation I have, workforce disruption, I can't get the people, I can't get the right people, I'm worried about my people going overseas or taking elongated leave, Um, inflation and interest rates, I know they're both going up but like should I be worried about it? Um, And by by the way, why is everyone talking about the US inflation and should I worry about that in Australia from a business perspective? Mm. Um, Supply chain's still a conversation and the fourth one is decarb. So those four issues come up in every meeting that I do in every sector right across the country. Um, What do you think about inflation, can I ask you, for next year? Yeah, do you know, I've spent a bit of time this week thinking about it, um, sort of trying to corral myself without any meetings and and think about it. Um, And as as you know, you know, used to cover inflation, so it's pretty dear to my heart. Um, I, I feel like we, you know, we are seeing inflation. Uh, there's some great research by the BIS that looks at the global commonality of inflation and at a headline level it accounts for about 50% of moves in inflation. 
Um, so global inflation is important, but it's not everything. Uh, and I think when we look at Australia, we are going to see higher inflation. I don't know that we're going to see worryingly high inflation. Um, so there is definitely a global impetus. My, my own view is that a good portion of that is transitory, that as supply chains unclog, some of that will become disinflationary, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, so I think, I think that's important uh, to, to bear in mind. So that's coming. Um, and then domestically, I guess there's sort of two competing things. Um, the one I worry about on the upside is, is through the housing market. You know, we're clearly seeing price pressures there and there's, there's a pretty strong pipeline coming from home builder, at least for the next little while. Uh, the offset to that, of course, is wages. We've got a tight labour market, but we have a really rigid wage setting framework in Australia, right? Yeah. 40% of people operate under enterprise bargaining agreements, which are negotiated every two, three, four years. So that takes time to feed through. 20% of the workforce uh, work for the public sector, which are by and large under wage caps or wage freezes. So I feel like wage growth can come, but it's going to come very, very slowly. And by the time it builds a bit of momentum here, I suspect some of the overheating and the bubble and the supply dislocation will be out of the market. So, so the real, real wages impact might finally be something that's like, um, you know, uh, significant. Um, if you have strong wage growth, but low inflation, uh, you know, by the time those factors That'd coalesce. Be That'd be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Keep in mind and that's too. not a bad thing. No, it's a good thing. Contrast, contrast that with America where, what was it, Dave, the conference board, conference board survey showed that companies were factoring in a 3.9% increase in wages next year, mm. which is up by about a percent. Yeah, so higher since the GFC. Incredible. Tailing incredible. GFC, yeah. So that's, that, that's them already factoring that in, yeah. which is good. So in real terms, it's like still you're going backwards 3%. One anyway. of the biggest differences, though, is... <laughs> um, Can't win them you all. Know, in the US, there's 2.5 million fewer people in the workforce than there was pre-pandemic. In Australia, prior to the Delta lockdown, we had the size of the economy, employment and participation Mm. at record highs. And the early indicators are that by the end of this year, post-Delta, we will see that again. So we, we, you know, participation is still coming back really quickly. So there are some different, there are some really fundamental differences. Yeah. Um, and, and just on the inflation thing, I do think there's a psychological component to it is, you know, that it's just the combined effect of seeing some price rises plus headlines about inflation, if you're a business decision maker, um, makes you think about um, just ratcheting up your prices a little bit. If you, you know, if, if you think the market's there, if you think it's easier to justify it with customers, et cetera, because um, inflation is a thing now. Sorry. So we put up the price of mains, $2 or whatever. So it can become this kind of self-fulfilling thing. And this is my experience in Ireland in the late 90s uh, when we had inflation um, 10% some years. Um, and it's because this, 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 um, this psychology takes hold where prices are rising. So people stop complaining about prices rising. Mm. Yeah. Oh, inflation expectations are important. Um, I mean, in Australia, they actually haven't risen any more than headline inflation has. And, and when you look at the data... Weirdly, inflation expectations are generally um, based on inflation that you're experiencing today. Yeah. <laughs> like households don't forecast it, right? A household doesn't sit there and go, oh, yeah. I think potential growth's about two and a half and GANZ's got, you know, 5% growth next year and the output gap will be closing. And like they kind of go, oh, I feel like my cost of living is rising roughly. And I mean, you know, that, and they always overestimate it, right? Um, I mean, the th- if you look, if you break down inflation, you look about, in Australia, the things that were driving headline inflation, childcare, which is policy Driven. response, um, fuel, which we can't do anything about and we'll, we'll trim out, um, cost of building a new home and renovations. I mean, people are feeling that, but you only feel that if you're renovating, mm. which is not everyone, right? And it's a big ticket item. So to some extent you feel like you don't have much comparison. Yeah. Like the last time you renovated was three years ago. So you go, oh, I don't really know what that means, right? Um, actually, the like, I mean that's why trimmed mean is at two two point one, not at three, right? Going to be interesting. Um, Laura, twenty twenty two. What will you be watching? I'll be watching China. 
because I think this year that's the one that, you know, we're all in lockdown and, and week after week you're just getting these new regulatory changes and it's like, what is going on at the top there? Like, what, why, where is this all coming from? Why suddenly now? Why yeah, so week after week? In companies that I've invested in too. Oh. <laughs> uh, so I think that's going to be really interesting. Obviously, we've got the Beijing Winter Olympics, which are clearly in the headlines at the moment as well around the political side. Uh, but I'm just wondering, you know, uh, did they try to just put a lot of big, difficult changes into 2021? Um, when already we knew you could explain away some of the, the growth disappoint, disappointments. And, and no know, one was watching them. Everyone much. was distracted. That's right. So, I, I, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting and obviously for Australia hugely important. I mean, it's always something that everybody's watching here, but um, I think it's become a lot harder to predict and that's, I think, a theme that's going to stay with us. We can yeah. see the, the, the credit cycle in China is starting to go and turn ever so slowly now, but what are we going to go and see in response? We're not going to go and see one of those big, big spending uh, fiscal uh, impulses that we've seen in previous cycles, it's likely to be small? I think so, yeah. It's not going to be like the big mm. Olympic one that we saw back in 2008, obviously. You know, it's just, it feels like now that there's a different mindset. Uh, it's more about, obviously, you know, I think the housing market's clearly important. We all know what's happening with the property developers, but at the same time, like, there's a lot of home ownership and everybody pretty much has that. So it's going to be really important to see how they handle that. Um, and that's, that's probably where they do need to, to keep that stimulus still feeding through, but it'll be um, yeah, much less big ticket items. James. Sorry. Oh, what am I looking for? Uh, Laura, um, speaking of China, actually, just while you were there, a big part of it was, I believe, President Xi had to sort of fulfil a lot of promises that he'd made a long time ago about what he was going to get done. And he had to try and jag it in before the plenum hmm. at, at this this year. So that's why 2021, I think, was his big his big year of just busting it, which he did. What am I looking for in 2022? Goodness, um, good night's sleep probably. But the, uh, I'm probably going to say that this this shift. We had a warning sign that happened last week and the week before about what stocks you should really not hold in your portfolio. So myself, from the investment manager side of things, I'm going to be looking at it going. Is this tech that is quality tech, or is this tech that is garbage tech? And I spoke about this on on Oz. DocuSign, good Oz. example, yeah. yeah. That's actually, it's actually a part of our quant model too, DocuSign. So we're sort of very interested to see what, what happened there. But the um, it's it's going to be that one. And what was the stat that was there was only so last week there was only four stocks in Kathy Wood's portfolio that weren't in a bear market, and it was like if you want a list of the stocks that you don't want to own, the crap that is going to get destroyed. Look at ARC. Yeah. Look, at, look at ARC's list and there's, they're not the ones that you want to be holding. You want to own quality tech and, and then all of a sudden- Are you sure though? Quality tech. You want to own big cap quality tech for sure. When this happens, we've got a warning of what's going on. Google, Google Apple, Facebook, oh, I hate to say it, Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, those ones, they didn't get, they didn't get wrecked like these other ones got because they're, they're still going to get used. They're not going away. Google mm -hmm. is still Google. Apple is still going to be Apple even if they don't sell as many phones. They've, mm -hmm. they've still got this amazing network. Those are the ones, if you want to own tech, you've got to own quality. You got a warning last, last week about what was going to happen. You also need to be looking at value really uh, just just really closely take a value etf it's going to be about 21 percent financials when rates go up and rates are going to go up but you know they already are when rates go up you want to own financials it doesn't get any simpler than that so that that's that's your value etf that, that you can take there you own quality you own value and you get rid of the crap that's in your portfolio we saw what happened to zip money last week we mm. saw what, what's happened to afterpay even though they're under a takeover What's happened to Afterpay? Down 25% or something. Yeah, crappy, crappy tech is going to get hammered. Um, we had a warning about what it's, what's, what's going to happen. So, um, yeah, it's got to be quality, it's got to be value, and it's got to be as big as it can possibly be too. Oh. So that's, that's where that is. That's what I'm looking for. Interesting. Um, Adelaide. Uh, General advice. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, I didn't put the warning on. <laughs> no, you start. didn't put yeah, the warning yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, actually, I can, uh, yeah, I can add that in later. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> <clears throat> Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so Adelaide, uh, it's going to be a big year uh, in your world too, uh, 2022, with, um, uh, you know, um, the data flow will, you know, in the recovery is going to be, um, uh, is going to be extraordinary. So what in particular do you think uh, is worth watching? So next year is going to be really interesting, I think, because, I mean, depending on whether Omicron stuffs everything up, uh, it'll be the year that we start to see the dust settle on some of those more structural patterns in the Australian economy. One thing that I'm really interested to see is how sticky the work from home 
uh, rates are. So there's a couple of reasons that I think that's really important. Um, the first is it impacts consumption quite heavily. So when people are spending more time at home, you see that they buy more goods and fewer services. We see household goods um, really outpace other types of spending. And we also see, you know, renovation activity is stronger than what would have been if we didn't have that work from home activity. So on a consumption side, it has all those consequences. Um, but also, I think it really speaks to employee bargaining power. So I know of a few businesses who were hoping to be kind of forcing everyone to get back into the office five days a week. And then I've seen that change and it's no longer the case. And I think that's a maybe a really unique precursor to wage pressure in the economy. I think the more an employee can ask for uh, in that non-financial space is a great way to predict what, when the, that kind of tips into, you know, really needing to put um, for employees to kind of put their money where their mouth is in terms of uh, retaining employees and gaining new employees as well. So for me, seeing some of those early signs of really uniquely COVID and post-COVID, um, you know, non-financial changes um, will have some pretty impressive impacts, I think, on, on wage growth and, and the household savings rate as well. And then just, I mean, how many, how are people going to be travelling internationally is another really big question because we tend to have a tourism uh, deficit, you know, where we spend about $45 billion a year. We only get about $23 billion a year from international tourists coming yeah, here. Yeah, we love a holiday. Uh, and how that will change things as well. Mm. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we love, we love a holiday and, we, you know, we do send a fair chunk of change Um I, remember, I still remember Gareth Ed telling us that that we spent more overseas than overseas spends on us. Yeah, that's right. And that's that's now that's going to have to come into play at some stage. We've put we've put this off too long because we're going to go overseas and we're going to spend like mad. Yeah, D just on the city thing, I think the workplace dynamic stuff is really really interesting. Um, so one thing with with the um, with people saying they want to stay at home and and work better at home and can right. I think there's a really interesting thing about, and, and also I will say on this subject, I, there has been so much nonsense written about this this year, you know, all this soft focus stuff about how we're reimagining the workforce and, you know, finally living in the future and more flexibility and all that kind of stuff. And I think some of the questions about, you know, how effective businesses can be with these kind of working arrangements are starting to get well, they are going to be asked in the next little while. Really interesting study this week where they had people do chess moves. Um, they analyzed 200,000 200, chess moves from people being in office environments versus being in home environments. Mm. And the idea being that chess moves are a good proxy for how well you make decisions uh, and think creatively and structurally under pressure. Executive, what do they call them, the pressure. executive functions or something like that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the people in the office environment were far more effective, right? Like uh, by um, a, a significant margin. So that was one thing. Um, the other thing is the motivations for people wanting to work at home. Uh, don't forget how, like, so you, you'll hear people say things about, well, there's a tension between people saying and genuinely believing that they work better at home but also you can't discount the fact that people's bank balances and their time are completely transformed by being able to work from home, right? Yeah. So uh, somebody like myself, I would say, like on a cheap day coming into the city, I drop 20 to 30 bucks at a minimum. It's usually something more like 50, right? Uh, on any given day in the city, right? Yeah. That's a thousand bucks a month. So one thing is people's bottom lines, but also then the reality of just having a bit more control over your life, right? So being in your own environment where you can manage your time and, um, uh, you know, and spend, you know, frankly, a little bit more time with the family, like you get a bit an extra half hour with the kids and uh, um, first thing in the morning or late in the evening. And it's, it's a big thing. So when people say, oh, I'm so much more productive, there's something underneath it that helps drive that view, um, which I think is just as important. And I think it's interesting that some companies in the States now are looking at cutting pay for people who um, are going to move to remote locations where their costs of living are uh, lower, right? So then it starts to become a question of, right, well, how big are you, how ready for this trade-off are you? Uh, I definitely think a lot of people are ready for it. Like, you know what, I could take a small pay cut and have a, live on a bigger property or have a bit something, do something a bit more comfortable, but yeah. So on a slight, related but slightly different note, one of the things that I worry about is... Um, people not thinking through the unintended consequences of not being mm -hmm. in the office. So the, 
I'm not suggesting anyone has to be in the office five days a week, but the reality is when you're together face-to-face is where the magic happens. And if you're earlier in your career, it's the meeting people, being seen, you're more likely to work on more interesting projects and just learning by seeing. You know, I'm much more likely to tap an economist on my way to a meeting and say, hey, why don't you just come along and watch this than I am to go oh, no, I, I, I should, like, message them on Teams and then find out if they're available and then jump into their calendar and then let me see if I can forward this Teams call. Oh, it was set up by someone else and it won't <laughs> allow me to do it. Let me ring the – you know, like, you're just not going to do it, right? Yeah, and then I worry oh about it. Um, I mean, that's, like, real. Yeah. That's heart, real. You, you can make my heart hurt. Every, <laughs> single, every, every single person. You just describe my year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, and then I'm going to throw a gender lens on this, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, we know that uh, for many young mothers, having that flexibility is incredibly important. And young fathers, but predominantly we still see caring done by young mothers. Um, and, you know, they, they, they're being told you can, you can work from home, stay at home, that's all good. But we need to be on it. We need to have an honest conversation about the potential unintended consequences. Because if you get to the end of the year and you have two candidates up for promotion and one has been in the the office, office, whatever, one day a week, three days a week, whatever it is, versus someone that's not been in the office, that candidate will be a richer candidate in most jobs, I I would think. So I think we just need to make sure the conversations we're having are honest. And also everyone says they're more productive, but... They're not more productive. They just have more hours. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and right. my, 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 the last thing I would add to it is like the actual economies in the city districts, right? So empty streets are not good. Um, empty buildings are not good. Uh, they're not good for the diversity in um, like cultural. Chris is going to play for us on the way out. But, um, you know, like cultural diversity, um, uh, food diversity, all those great things we know about like Sydney, for example, it's brand as you know, just so much choice and everything is here. And then, but then like, if there's not the same kind of momentum, if there's like, there's literally a recession in the CBD, an ongoing one where um, economic activity is lower than it was over the previous few years, things are going to close. Uh, in fact, uh, just outside the door, the Foresters across the road from the Grace Hotel here, shut. I couldn't believe it. It's just, um, it, and it looks pretty grim. A disaster. Um, um, yeah. uh, Chris, throwing to you, our resident artist, what are you looking for in, 2022. Anything, anything out there in the art scene? Changes? Um, I just think c- coming together, playing music again, just rehearsing, sharing ideas. Uh, like Joe was saying, like just, just that's that's where magic happens. Yeah, yeah you know. Yeah. Um, the workplace. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's where people create, you know, symphonies and and, and new new pieces. You know, you, you need need that contact. So. Um, I, I hope it's going to be a really busy, uh, full of culture year. Yeah, yeah, I, ho- I hope nice. all the galleries are pumping out as much art as we can. Yeah, increase yeah. the content. Yeah. So take your uh, take your vouchers and get in to see an art exhibition. Go and see Chris. Go and see the orchestra. Mm. Go and see anyone you can. They're giving you free money. Go and use it. Uh, we'll get you to play in a sec, Chris. Uh, but uh, Scotty, twenty twenty two. No borders? No, no state borders closed? Hopefully not. <laughs> yeah. Stephen Marshall, hope you're listening. Uh, yeah, 2022 is going to be an interesting year. I feel pretty good about the economy. Uh, housing market I'm watching pretty closely. I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see a moderation and some, maybe some small declines in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, prices uh, run very hard. Maybe some of the smaller markets as well that have done very well. Um, one thing that really concerns me at the moment uh, is the geopolitics side. Uh, South China Sea remains a deep concern and what's going on in Europe. Uh, we've, got, Ukraine, uh, two, we've, got, yeah. we've got two leaders there at the moment who are very emboldened and uh, I just hope they don't go and test out the resolve of the West. On that note, <laughs> <laughs> I've always, uh, I, and from an investment point of view, that, that anyone who says that uh, a potential war, uh, like a huge war, oh, what are we going to do? And, uh, this is a little bit, little bit sort of half cynical, but it's actually quite factual. Remember when North Korea was, oh, they're going to, drop a nuke, there's going to be a nuclear war, it's going to, we need to get out of the portfolio. It's just like, if there's nuclear war, you're really going to be worried about your super fund. It's any, any, dip on a, any dip on a potential explosive scenario in the South China Sea is probably going to be a buying opportunity. But 
wait until it actually is until <laughs> you do it. You probably won't think that at the time, but it's that. That's that. Uh, a quick note before we wrap up, uh, and Chris is going to play for us. But uh, the show has been um, supported by Grapple, um, and Grapple has developed cutting edge technology to fund Australian SMEs, delivering flexible solutions and a seamless user experience. Grapple provides working capital financing for Australian businesses at any stage of growth, and their technology is unrivaled, giving you access to the funds needed to grow your business while seamlessly integrating with your accounting system. It's working capital reimagined. Thank you, Grapple. You've been awesome. And thanks to all of our sponsors during the year. And can I say a huge thank you to our guests, um, you guys um, and Adelaide. It's great to be adding you to um, our uh, Christmas uh, special. Um, it's great to have you here. It's been great getting to know you this year. Um, and uh, you've been doing fantastic work there. But um, Joanne, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. I hope, hope to be back. Yes, uh, we will definitely. The, the invite's going out tomorrow. Um, Dave, <laughs> Dave, thanks very much. Uh, great seeing you again, mate. It's great. Looking forward to number six already. Yeah, excellent. Uh, and Laura, uh, just been uh, a privilege uh, as always. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for the invite as always. James, been real. Mate, it's been, it's been a hell of a year. Well done. Couldn't imagine. Uh, I'm so tired. One of my proudest achievements of, of this year has been that we've actually managed to make this podcast viable and that we can keep on doing what we're doing and helping people, which is, which is really important to me. If I don't have that actualisation on the Laszlo's, Laszlo's periodic table of elements, then... Uh, then <laughs> he, he called it Laszlo's hierarchy of needs hierarchy. on the show earlier this yeah, year. And I got yeah. slammed. It was, it was years ago and I still get slammed. For, anyway, anyway, if I don't get that self-actualisation through doing this podcast, then I have a big piece of me missing. Oh. Um, Similar to similar to not hearing Chris Pidcock play the cello live last year. I know, and nobody for, for that for that little profound and emotional statement. You, it, uh, it's very hard to obviously you can't do this on audio only. But James is wearing a ridiculous hat. I am wearing a ridiculous so. hat. Speaking, <laughs> speaking very very seriously, wearing a ridiculous hat. Yeah, people yeah. take people pay attention to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is it, it is good. And I and I did miss I, I missed hearing Chris uh, speak. Uh, sort of play last play last year and it, and it sort of had a bit of a hole in me. Wonderful. He brings, he so, brings real joy. So 2022, we're going to put a lid on it. Um, it's been uh, fantastic. Um, thank you to all of our listeners. Um, the show is nothing without you guys. Um, thanks for all the lovely feedback and notes and suggestions during the year. Um, and uh, we will catch you in 2022 in February, I think, because uh, we're all going to have a Bit of a break and a, a long nap. I'm I on think, the beach so. for the whole month of January. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> In the rain. Great. <laughs> so I'm going to turn you over to the uh, uh, amazing hands of uh, Mr. Christopher Pidcock. Look him up. Uh, he has his shows Opus Day. Um, oh, not Opus Day. Opus Now. <laughs> Opus Now. And he's got his album Immersed in Bach by, by Chris Pidcock. Uh, you should look it up. It's great. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, everyone.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.